Hello and welcome to this episode of the Rare Possessions Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Galetti. And with me, as always, is the archivist from Book of Mormon Central, Jared Riddick. How's it going? It's going good. We're going to be going over Chapter 9 in George Q. Cannon's The Life of Nephi. And we just learned that the Q is for... Quail. It's for Quail. That's an interesting middle name. Yeah. Poor guy. <laughs> Not sure where that came from. But anyway, so in Chapter 9, we have some interesting... I, I would call it a little bit of a turn because, again, this book is called The Life of Nephi. But in this particular chapter... It seems to spend a lot more time on Laman and Lemuel and kind of contextualizing their life and experience. The start of chapter nine, what are some of the things that Canon brings out about Laman and Lemuel and their relationship with Jerusalem? They're typical of their time and typical of the Jews in Jerusalem. They have the same attitudes, probably both politically and towards religion. They're not a fan of the prophets that are going around Jerusalem at this time. They're not a fan of what their dad's doing like a lot of other people weren't. And in fact, there was a sense that they were saying that they were, I don't want to say a product of Jerusalem, but they were certainly influenced by the culture in which they grew up and where they wanted to be. They felt comfortable there. How might this have even been taken in George Q. Cannon's time, but certainly today? Is there any kind of implications that Cannon is trying to bring out about Laman and Lemuel's character with relationship to Jerusalem that you, that you saw? Uh, he's certainly making them a type. They, they almost become less of individuals and more of an example of, of a lesson that he's trying to get across is to not be overconfident in their government because governments come and go. And uh, the saints certainly were seeing that at that point in time. The, the protection of the government had waxed and waned yeah. uh, throughout them. A lot of promises that didn't go through. But yeah, you're seeing, you're seeing Canon kind of not rest Laman and Lemuel, but certainly uh, use them as a, as a teaching example. Now, one of the things that he goes into, and, and again, you're talking about Laman and Lemuel being kind of a type of what they would see as Jews in Jerusalem, but he again goes into the history of uh, King Zedekiah and the kings of that time, and this notion that the people in Jerusalem felt almost as if they were in a place that was impenetrable, that they couldn't fall. Yeah, like the, the only reason that the Babylonians were able to get in before is because they'd been let in. Uh, yes, we've been, we've had wars, we've lost some battles, but we're still here. We're still going. The Lord's going to protect us. Um, that's what you kind of have going in, in Jerusalem at that time is a really brief summary <laughs> yeah. of certain attitudes. Sure, sure. One of the things that I find when I read the first little bit of the Book of Mormon and most of Nephi's history of his people is that, that it does this whole idea of not really an us versus them, but a, a distinction between the two sides, between the Nephites and the Lamanites. And it's done to teach lessons. It's done to kind of say, this is the right way, this is the wrong way. And Canon kind of takes on that same feel here in chapter nine, where he's showing, again, the differences between the two cultures and trying to teach a lesson. So what might be one of those lessons that he's almost implying, but isn't directly coming out and saying? I think one of the things he doesn't come out great come out and say, but it's implied both in Nephi's time and will be implied later with a Nephite and Lamanite culture, is not to have, going back to what I said earlier, not to have pride and arrogance in the government, not depend on that. You need to maintain your relationships with the, with the Lord and ensure that you don't fall victim to pride. You don't fall victim to indolence or to laziness or to just not just letting the status quo be maintained as it is. You have to continue working because if you stop working, you just stand still and you go back. 
Well, and one of the other things that we see even today, there's this idea of nationalism and being true to your country before you are true to God. Yeah. And when I read the Book of Mormon, I don't see the Nephites really thumping. They're not thumping their chest as Nephites. Where as much as the Lamanites are very proud of their Lamanite heritage and they, you know, they, they kind of hold that flag, whereas the Nephites are just trying to live the commandments and, and that sort of thing, at least when they're being righteous, of course. Yeah. yeah. The Book of Mormon has a lot of lessons about not putting God first, about, I mean, uh, of, of people not putting God first and of allowing politics or political views or ethnic lineages come before the Lord. Yeah. And there's a lot of warnings in there about that. Yeah. So that's most of what we have in chapter 9, and it's a bit of a shorter one, but that's all right. So stay tuned for a reading of chapter 9 in Life of Nephi by George Q. Cannon. Life of Nephi by George Q. Cannon, chapter 9. Laman and Lemuel were evidently full of the ideas which were popular in Jerusalem at the time they lived there. It was the popular thing at that time to reject the predictions and warnings of Jeremiah and the other prophets concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, the killing of many of its inhabitants, and the carrying away captive of many unto Babylon. We are warranted in believing that these young men had but little faith in these predictions. They had a good inheritance in Jerusalem. Their father Lehi was a man of wealth there, having an abundance of gold and silver and other precious things. They could see no sense in the movement which he had made in leaving his comfortable and pleasant surroundings and taking his journey into the wilderness. At no time during their wanderings do they appear to have had any faith in what their father said should be the fate of Jerusalem. The confidence of the Jews in the city of Jerusalem and its high density was something very extraordinary. Their great men and prophets had rejoiced in the walls and bulwarks of its glorious temple. They had uttered many promises and predictions concerning the city and its great destiny. These utterances the Jews believed. The prophets who had spoken and written them had passed away, but their memories were cherished as sacred. New prophets arose who prophesied evil concerning the city, the temple, and the people. They foretold the disasters which should befall them and the dreadful fate that awaited them unless the nation and its rulers should speedily repent. These prophets the Jews rejected. They did not believe Jeremiah. They did not believe Ezekiel. They did not believe Lehi, nor any of the many prophets who Nephi informs us were raised up and sent by the Lord to them at that time. But Josephus says they did give credit to false prophets who deluded them, and with the statement that the king of Babylon would make no more war against them, but that the Egyptians, who were the allies of the Jews, would make war against him and conquer him. The king of Babylon had killed their king, Jehoiakim. He had taken away many captives. His son, Jehoiachim, whom he had made king, had also been sent captive to Babylon, together with many thousands of the leading people. The temple had been despoiled, and Zedekiah himself, an uncle of the last king and brother of King Jehoiakim, had been placed upon the throne by the king of Babylon and only held the kingly dignity by his permission. Yet, so confident were they of their future prosperity, and Josephus informs us so deluded by false prophets as to the assistance Egypt would render them, that they were heedless of all the predictions and warnings of the true prophets of God, and sought to take their lives. According to Josephus, 
false prophets deceived Zedekiah in saying that the king of Babylon would not make any more war against him or his people, nor remove them out of their own country into Babylon, and that those then in captivity would return with all those vessels of which the king of Babylon had despoiled the temple. It is very evident that Laman and Lemuel shared in these mistaken views. They had but little or no faith in their father's words. The false prophets made statements and uttered pretend prophecies which were more agreeable to their ears and more in consonance with their ideas and anticipations. Jerusalem had been chosen of God. It was his city. Tradition had pointed out one of the hills upon which it stood as the spot to which Abraham brought his son Isaac upon that memorable occasion when, in obedience to divine command, he prepared to sacrifice him to the Lord. From the days of David, it had been the political and religious capital of the Israelitish nation. The king had removed the Ark of the Covenant there. He had prepared gold and silver, brass and iron, dressed stones and cedar timber in abundance before his death for his son Solomon, with which to build the temple. Here was that glorious building which was adorned and beautified by the great King Solomon as no building had ever been, the house of God, which he had designed to fill with his glory. This structure, for its extent, elaborateness, and grandeur, was not only the pride of all Israel, but the wonder of all people who saw it. In the temple was the great altar of sacrifice, the Holy of Holies, toward which the eyes of all the nation were turned as the point where the Lord revealed himself to his servants. When Lehi and his family left Jerusalem, the temple had been despoiled of much of its riches. But those celebrated works of molten brass, executed by Hiram the tyrant, with which Solomon had adorned it, the sea of ten cubits in diameter, supported by twelve oxen, the bases and the pillars Jachin and Boaz, each of them eighteen cubits in height and twelve in circumference which stood in the porch, still remained there. It was not until the capture of the city of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, about eleven years after the departure of Lehi, that these were broken up, and the materials, with other rich plunder from the temple and from the city, carried to Babylon. Though in the days of Lehi, Jerusalem was not so magnificent as in the days of Solomon, yet it was still the splendid city of the great king. It had passed through many vicissitudes since that day. Ten of the tribes had seceded under Jeroboam and set up a rival capital at Samaria. Yet to the Jew it was the holiest spot on earth, and around it clustered the most glorious memories and the most brilliant hopes. The withdrawal of the allegiance and the tribute of the larger portion of the Israelitish race had not caused the kingly city to lose much of its splendor or of its influence among the nations. The sons of Lehi were familiar with the history of their birthplace. They knew that if it had declined through the misrule of one monarch, it had been resuscitated through the zeal of another. It was more than likely that Laman and Lemuel had unshaken confidence in the skill and valor of their nation in war. They knew how impregnably strong were the fortifications, the towers and the walls of the sacred city. They were aware that it was only by the consent of the last two kings that the armies of the king of Babylon had effected their entrance within the walls but they were probably satisfied in their own minds that should the people of Jerusalem defend their city, no army or means of attack which the king of Babylon could bring against it would be successful in effecting its capture, much less its destruction. They would not believe that the city which the Lord had chosen 
and which had a historic existence of five centuries before the hanging gardens for which Babylon was famous were built, was to be destroyed by the king of that city. But the Lord had pronounced its doom. He had witnessed its wickedness and abominations. His prophets had warned its people what their fate would be, and there was only one way of escape, the contrite repentance of its king, nobles, and people, and thorough submission to the will of the Lord. Eleven years after Lehi and his family left Jerusalem, the city was captured by Nebuchadnezzar. But so formidable was its resistance that it could only be reduced by starving its inhabitants. Lehi was shown its destruction in a vision, and in telling his sons and all their families about it, he said that had they remained in Jerusalem, he and they would also have perished. The Lord did not suffer Lehi and Nephi to be injured by these wicked children and brothers. He was with them. And the voice of the Lord spoke many things unto the conspirators, and chastened them exceedingly. This caused their anger to subside, and they repented of their sins. And once more they were blessed with food, and were saved from perishing. Thank you for listening to the Rare Possessions Podcast, from the archives of Book of Mormon Central. For the latest information on additions to the Book of Mormon Central archive, or to inquire about archive items like this one, Visit us online at archive.bookofmormoncentral.org.